Welcome back to the Superheroes Everyday Podcast. I'm Danny Horn. I'm here with Stuart Manning. Stuart, hello. Hello. This is Act 3 of Joel Schumacher's 1997 Cry for Help, Batman and Robin. The story so far, the world is on the verge of being taken over by two lunatics who don't understand the difference between the world and a city. Cool customer Mr. Freeze wants to ice the world one person at a time, which is going to take a hot minute. Meanwhile, Bad Seed Poison Ivy plans to scratch out our heroes unless they can get to the root of the problem in Act 3 of Batman and Robin. And then we have a telescope party. One question that I have about, about this observatory is, it is, like, with along with the strange architecture, the observatory appears to be lifted up and tilted sideways by an enormous statue who is holding it. I don't know how all of these people get up there. Yeah, the, I mean, the architecture of this film is 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 something to behold. Um, yeah. I, I don't mind it, but yes, I mean, the... the this the is pro- the one that feels The, the planning permission required yeah. to put these things in Gotham City is open to much conjecture. The only thing I can think of is that everybody actually has their own little grappling hook and they can just like shoot straight up and everyone gets lifted up. That comes standard in Gotham City. Actually, they would need it with all the like rivers and crevasses and everything. Yeah, you know, plunge into a ravine after doing the shopping. <laughs> so here we are at our telescope party. Ivy, Julie is still there? Bruce is still carrying Julie around for some reason. Yeah, well, she's she's here, but this is her. This is actually the one bit Elle McPherson does that I like, where she has a reaction to Gossip Gertie, which borders on shady, and it's clearly <laughs> a very inexperienced actress trying to find something, anything to do in a scene where she's standing around not yeah. really doing anything, and she she just gives Gossip Gertie this look of disdain, <laughs> presumably thinking I could have done that line just as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look out for it. It's her near it's the nearest she has to a human moment. <laughs> but picking on gossip Gertie, that's the that's the wrong attitude. That's the you're last gonna, person. You're not gonna make any friends that way. Yeah, I love gossip Gertie. Um Ivy is here in her Pamela Isley costume. And there's a, a whole, I feel like, unnecessary plot point of finding finding the bat signal. And getting up to in the police station to be able to to turn that into a Robin signal. It feels to me like that that question, where does that light come from? Feels like that is very easily answered. There is a big cone of light. Presumably at p- police headquarters. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange sort of thing. And it's not. I think, again, this has happened a few times in this film. I think that was a really great piece of concept art that mm-hmm. engineered a moment to have. And there's a great shot we'll see when we get to where Robin is uh, following Ivy is framed by the Robin signal in yeah. a sort of typical noirish way. It's a beautiful, it's a really beautiful shot. And I'm sure that someone did a really nice drawing of it. And as a result, it <laughs> into a script Yeah, um, in this very long winded circuitous via a circuitous bit of storytelling but yeah i and it's also a really long scene with commissioner gordon who is not great but freeze is great this is this is a big pantomime villain freeze moment where his Mm -hmm. henchmen are just like giggling around and he just turns straight to camera and says first i will turn gotham into an icy graveyard then i will pull batman's heart from his body and feel it freeze in my hands Ah, <laughs> revenge. 
which is perfect. He's sort of he's just like nothing in the world can stop me now. It is that is that moment, isn't it? It's great. I love that man. I got nothing but good things to say about him. And then Bane pulls the vet signal off of the roof. Ivy's line is "Let there be light," which I'm not happy with. Well, again, it's it, it's one of these things that's kind of got the shape of a quip, but doesn't mm-hmm. really mean anything. It's the opposite. Uh, yeah, and there are a lot, of, and there is a lot of these moments in this film. And I guess you you know, your your mileage varies depending on how much you like the character and how much you like the delivery, because frequently. Mm-hmm what people are saying is meaningless. <laughs> yes. It's really, it's sort of like ping pong. It's their sort of punch, or it's like a, an audible full stop. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, things to sort of get in and out of scenes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the minute you think about them for a split second, yeah, so it's like, what right. does that mean? Yeah, that's not a joke. Now, Barbara has the little CD-ROM, which she is investigating. Alfred's thing. She puts on little glasses. Which I just think is hilarious. Like they, they never worn a pair of spectacles in her life, and and she is supposed to be a computer genius. And what she's doing with the computer is just guessing passwords, very badly, very badly. So the first one, Alfred. Yes, yeah. She just types in his name. I mean, it's obvious. Like the password. I suppose we're at a nascent stage of technology and the internet. Because I was sort of thinking about this, like. Oh yeah, this look kind of antiquated. But I was thinking, like, how many people in the audience would have a home computer at that point? I guess it's about on the tip. Ninety-seven, yeah, ninety-seven. They've got. They might even have dial-up by that point. I think I I got on the internet at the end of that year and had my yeah. first PC. Yeah. And so it's, it's so like your first computer password is going to be your name. Yeah, maybe, maybe I can't remember what mine was, but yes, maybe. Well, the one what everyone uses is is just it's it's an obscure Star Wars character. Like that's what mm-hmm. everybody does. Star Wars is made up almost exclusively of passwords that George Lucas came up with. Bruce comes back. Bruce is now visiting Alfred, sitting by his bed, touching his face, <laughs> and Bruce is smiling. He's saying, yeah. "I love you, I love you, old man." Yeah, this is again. This is Clooney's. Why are you smiling? I think Clooney wanting to be this likable guy. And I think yeah. it's... I, and it's really counter to what's going on. Yet, I do kind of like this scene because I think in the sort of bro way that superhero movies usually are, this mm-hmm. is actually feels like a sort of male friendship scene that feels relatable and mm-hmm. not, you know... Well, it is it, definitely... It's He says, I love you. He says, I love yeah, you, old man. And, and Alfred, sort of, Alfred says, I love you too. I, I sort of think that, in a way, feels, you know, quite revolutionary. It feels even now that feels like a scene you wouldn't really see very often in these kinds of films. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish Clooney played it a bit better. The thing that I think is funny is that he strokes Alfred's face, which just feels to me like, oh yeah, no, fondling a butler. That's usually that's usually what you do if he's been a good butler. That's what you do as you stroke his face. Well, he'd be cancelled for it now. <laughs> Barbara finally figures out that yeah, when password. Barbara finds out, she's not going to be happy. <laughs> that, that Bruce has been fondling him. Barbara oh, finally Bruce. figures out, she figures out that three-letter password. And uh, and the computer is all excited about it. Because it's saying, like, access denied. There's, like, a, a very kind of stern uh, bit of, of voice acting from the computer that says access denied. And then when she puts in peg, the computer says access allowed 
Yeah, it's very slinky, and I it's like. It's very excited, and I like the the rather feeble succession of PNG <laughs> yeah. that sort of scoot down. That probably took someone weeks to program. Yes, it's quite a nice moment. Again, I think it's slightly it's slightly tiresome that uh, Batgirl's origin story is she hacked a very easy to hack password. <laughs> It was literally written down in front of her. Yeah. But then we go into the cave, and actually I think the the bit with the laser lights that aren't quite lasers mm -hmm. is visually really great. And, and I like Al the AI Alfred. That, that's quite modern now. It's kind of odd, really. Yeah, he, comes, he, comes up, than it was. he does a little yeah. bit of a, like, there's a little shutter to it's show. It's Max Headroom, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He looks like he's been sort of um medium filtered or something to make him look a bit plasticky. And he says, uh I've I programmed my brain algorithms into the bat computer and created a virtual simu simulation. So which in is that the... case, does it really matter if Alfred dies? Because there's a simulation of him in the back of the computer. It's got all of Alfred's memories, I presume. It can yeah. it can't it can't pick up shoes, but <laughs> I don't know, can he keep designing things? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think you need the real one. He's because who's going to get all the pizza and the coffee and everything? Oh, that's true. Freeze is driving around the city with Bane for some reason, and Freeze is very excited about the telescope um, to power his freezing engine because once again, we have no idea what a telescope is or what it does. No, telescopes are magical objects that can do almost anything. Oh, yeah, clearly. I mean, that's. Uh... I mean, I I know it's a hiding to nothing to sort of try and get into the science of this thing, but yes, that is <laughs> truly, that's truly bewildering. <laughs> uh, and then there's the Robin signal. So you wanted to discuss the Robin signal. Well, the Robin signal, it's a great, I think it's a great image. Yeah. And I, I can see why someone thought, yeah, that's really great. You subvert the bat signal and now mm -hmm. it's the Robin signal. And that does play into everything they've been doing. But it sort of feels like it requires... Ivy to be cognizant of this whole psychodrama that's going on between Bruce and Dick, which as far as I'm aware, she's not. Well, I think she actually, no, she inspired it. She was like right from the start when she dusts them both, she's like trying to play them off each other. I sort of get that, but it feels, you know, it feels like oddly specific. Like she's mm -hmm. done something that validates Robin in exactly the way that would push his buttons. And that is maybe, true. Maybe Robin's just very basic and she's worked this out. Um, <laughs> And knows exactly how he would operate, which, you know, that's plausible. But, yeah, I feel like it, it should be, there should be a sort of moment where it's like, you know, you're better than Batman. You could, yeah. she should be pushing that whole thing much more actively, putting that idea mm -hmm. in his head. Whereas instead, he sort of had that idea before he's even met her to a degree. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, you're right that she she just kind of happens to feed into the thing that's happening with him already. Well, this is yeah, the okay. big this is the big resolution scene where Bruce kind of like talks him into into being okay. Uh where he's trying to he's trying to tell Dick that she's hypnotized us. He's all upset. Uh you'd say anything to keep us apart. And then it's his big speech. You once said to me that being part of a team means trusting your partner. Sometimes counting on someone else is the only way to win. Do you remember that? You weren't talking about being partners. You were talking about being a family. So I'm asking you, friend, partner brother will you trust me now and and dick kind of just sighs 
I like friend, partner, brother. Like they possibly father, possibly uncle. Like they cannot figure out actually what what that relationship is. No, no, it does feel like it's not. Well, it certainly feels like it's not been really tailored to the the Bruce they've ended up with. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that feels very placeholder sort of dialogue. Yeah, and yeah, it's I don't know. I, I I think it, I think the problem I have with that is it's visible screenwriting. I can see exactly what mm. it's there to do, and it's doing it, but in the most perfunctory, on the nose way. Yes. Yeah. And it's not there, clever. I can, see, I can see why it's there. I mm-hmm. can see. Yeah, it's the kind of thing. It really there should be a joke somewhere, and it's it doesn't come. Freeze taking over the telescope. There's these two scientists who are kind of fussing over it. Who now, I think we're meant to think of really uh, sort of charming comedy relief. and uh, Yeah, they're very cute. And it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's just very left field, given that mm-hmm. we've had a film full of extras who do not speak under any circumstances. <laughs> right. This Greek chorus. Got a couple of character actors who are, who mm-hmm. are going to do their thing for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Now, the, the telescope seems to have, it's apparently powered by crystals, which equals... Enormous diamonds. Yeah, they look exactly the same as the enormous diamond from earlier. Yeah, uh, I, there's. I kind of like that that shot of him elevating up and mm-hmm. right, you know, uh, being surrounded by the diamonds, and he looks delighted by them. Uh, I, I mean, he absolutely just, is. Yeah, I mean, he just loves diamonds. But yeah, I again, I I don't really understand how diamonds are a power source. For um, telescopes as well as freezing, or as, yeah. for free, as for refrigeration, yeah, they will do everything. But yeah, I am fine. He he freezes up the scientists. I am fine with watching as much of that effect as they feel like showing me. I think every time it is good. And then there is just the 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 pile of sadness, which is Bane walking around planting these little ice bombs and saying "bomb, bomb." It's I can't have that. It's awful. It really is. That doesn't make sense. Doesn't you know? And generally, I'll defend the artistry of this film and the craft, mm-hmm. but they do not look anything like ice. Uh, those they, bomb crystals they look like yeah. the most plastically. Oh yeah, they absolutely do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some shortcuts on that one for sure. Yeah. I'm not even sure what an ice bomb would be. And then Barbara gets into the Batcave and she suits up. Exactly the same as Batman and Robin suited up, where you get like glove, crotch, mm-hmm. heels, thigh, butt, breasts. I, I think I like the equal opportunities aspect of that, that we didn't <laughs> skip that. Um, you'll, you'll have that montage whether you want it or not. I feel like that's actually the answer to anybody who um, who is talking about this being homoerotic, because they do. People pay a lot of attention to the butt shots at the beginning of the film of the guys and they do exactly the same thing. Like this is sort of, I think that the actual like sexlessness of it, which mm-hmm. you were talking about where just showing her butt is not any more exciting than it was when, when it was Batman's or Robin's. No, I mean, I suppose there's a problem with those costumes is that they're so inanimate, mm-hmm. but you know, you are just look. you might as well be looking at something on a mannequin and possibly are. You absolutely are. Yeah. No, there's no way that, that she's inside that costume. Yeah. Yeah, it's just showing you parts of the parts of the costume rather than parts of somebody's body. Time for Robin and Batgirl to go and fight with Poison Ivy in the Turkish bath. She is sitting in her big pink flower chair and Robin is coming in. He uh, 
So this is the big sultry seduction scene. He says, I want us to be together, but I want to make sure you're serious about turning over a new leaf. I need a sign. I, I The new leaf line did make me laugh. Actually, <laughs> like, it was so dumb, but I kind of loved it. And I like the way they, uh, they I like the way they make the, the sort of, there is a sort of pointlessness, but it's great of him walking across all the lily pads when mm-hmm. he did obviously just walk around the perimeter but yeah no he's just going straight for her it's just that yeah it's i i really like i just the scene works really well i think and i love the music you know the fact it's sort of that faux slinky sort of saxophone Mm -hmm. um yeah it's sort of tongue-in-cheek in in just the right way and this is the one place where we see essentially like the control of plants because there's sort of these these curtains yeah it's actually quite creepy that isn't it close behind him yeah it's coming through kind of aware of it but only after it's happened mm-hmm. this film doesn't really do creepy and i suppose poison ivy as a villain is probably creepy more than anything else even though they don't really yeah, i mean it. more more creepy than sexy yeah and could have really used more creepy you're right and then she kisses him and it turns out that he has lip condoms on mm-hmm. and she's very unhappy about that I like this. This is actually something, this actually feels like something smart. Um, we've not seen a lot of people do, you know, certainly we've not seen Robin doing a lot of smart stuff in this film. So you're right. It's yeah. the one, it's the one time he has a plan, mm-hmm. but she is push, pissed off and she pushes him into a tank of water where he just stays for the entire rest of the sequence without, without suffocating. Yeah. No, he's just kind of struggling down there. Somehow Batman comes in instead of stopping her. He just like kind of stands in front of her while she has some kind of, this actually would have been, if this was the 66 Batman, he would have brought some kind of like bat defoliant or something, mm-hmm. but he has not done that here. And this is, this is the one place where like she actually uses plants and has some vines picking him up. He's, and it, unfortunately for, for me, like I wanted, I wanted her to use plants. It does kind of highlight how lame Batman is in this. It does that, and it also it doesn't help that it's they are really feeble looking kind of rubber mm-hmm. vines. It's like there's a similar sort of sequence in the first Adams Family film, which would have been ninety one, yeah. where it gets sort of cocooned in vines, and it's actually done really well. And they're kind of barky, and they look like something you'd struggle. Whereas you you've got a lot of um, I don't know what you call it, like that sort of pantomime exertion acting try acting yeah where you're just like trying really hard i knew there was some sort of something you'd call it but yeah <laughs> where I, you know i'm struggling really hard yeah things, but clearly not too yeah. hard which actually Clooney also does during the bit where he's ice manacles in the rocket earlier yeah that's on. right sort of like pretending that you're like oh i'm really struggling yeah particularly bad at that stuff he yeah. clearly <laughs> it, it feels it. vaguely demeaned having to sort of pretend this yeah batman <laughs> Batman really is sitting this film out. Yeah, he really is. And then Batgirl comes in. I mean, all of that is in service of now we get a Batgirl scene. I I find this part tragic in a couple of different ways. <laughs> she comes in through the skylight. These people must spend a fortune on skylights. And it doesn't help. It's a really bad slowed down shot. Something clearly went wrong with that stunt. <laughs> right. Of it's, her. Like, it's really undercranked and looks really janky. Yeah, they're taking their time on it. And then, like, the thing, the first thing that I find tragic about it is she has some great, like, moments and lines that I wish was the way that that character was. Mm-hmm. So she comes in, she's like, you're about to become compost. 
And then they do like some judo kicks. And she has this like kind of critical line of like using feminine wiles to get what you want, trading on your looks. Read a book, sister. That passive aggressive number went out long ago, which it feels like it's from a completely different character. Yeah, it's very written, but I like that character. It's you know it's it's go it's goofy and it's stagey, but I wish that she had been like that the whole time. Well, it's an attitude, and we've not really seen that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, whatever thoughts Barbara has on most things, other than indentured servitude, she's kept to herself. And right. so, yeah, there is something in her having an attitude and an opinion and expressing it is mm -hmm. kind of in a way that's relevant to the scene. She actually feels connected for the first time, and yeah not done that otherwise yeah i wish that they had given her a character like this this would have been interesting this whole time like her coming in with that kind of attitude just even right from the top like coming in as alfred's niece mm -hmm. if she was kind of like snappy and and intelligent written as intelligent i could have used that we get a little bit here and then the other the most tragic thing i think ivy's defeat tell me about ivy's defeat uh well she's she's kicked backwards into her own plants isn't yes. she Yep. Um, sort of and I actually kind of like the curses, which I think is very funny <laughs> because it's just a great last line. But it's, it's just like the the pant the the ultimate actual cliche pantomime line of curses. Oh, it's like, it's, I mean it's like Maleficent falling off the cliff. Yeah. It's yeah. just it, I mean it's a Disney villain's kind of defeat, and I kind <laughs> of like that. Um it feels and I like the I, I, the image of her being swallowed up by the plant is funny, mm -hmm. uh, but I feel like how did that defeat her? She's in control I, of yeah. it. Be her. I can imagine her sort of. You could have a very funny moment where she staggers out of the plant, unkempt and disheveled, and slugs it out to the finish line. Or if it was like a big Venus flytrap, which she's been well, kind of suggesting that she would have, and like, and now yeah. she's caught in the Venus flytrap. What it's sort of meant to be. And it Probably. just doesn't, and it's ended up, is that sort of an art department's done you dirty and you've asked for a big Venus flytrap and they've made you this kind of... I think possibly, yeah. ...fluttering orchid mm -hmm. and kind of come across as a result. I mean, there's a sort of odd... Poison Ivy's plants, because there's this whole sort of subplot, isn't there? She's going to make plants that right. um, yeah. are, are, are crossed with snakes and we sort of see mm -hmm. this curved frog sort yeah. of in jar, which is in some ways adorable and is also... Mm -hmm. Possibly the worst prop in the entire film. <laughs> but I mean, I would say I would say this is the worst. I would say that this is actually the worst moment in the whole movie. Like just the most, you know, we can enjoy the artifice. We have been, you and I have been enjoying the artifice of this crazy movie. <laughs> and it really goes as big as as it wants to go. And this is the one moment of artifice where like getting pushed back into the chair where he where she was just sitting two seconds ago just doesn't like it doesn't make sense and not making sense is fine but like but it doesn't feel i mean the right. way i suppose it would work i mean it, it's it's a little confused in the sense we don't really know what happens i mean is she yeah. just inconvenienced that actually right. it turns out she's then defeated it was and again it's not a film where this is going to happen because i say no one really ever gets so much as a hair askew yeah, but you would suddenly hear the plant crunching away and her screaming horrifically. It should be that. Would it should that, be would that moment then work. Yes. yes, if that was a Venus flytrap mm. and was chewing on her, that would have worked. Yeah, I think you're right. She's 
Whereas, yes, it does feel like she's been mildly inconvenienced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, trapped sitting in your own in your own chair. I've fallen back into my own chair. Yeah, <laughs> I'm defeated forever. <laughs> she's just really tired at that point. It's been a long movie. And now we are going to go to another playset. This is the Mr. Freeze Observatory micro playset. Mm-hmm. We've got the telescope and the big dildo-shaped rocket. And he is having some fun. Let's kick some ice, he says. And so there's something here that I read about that I wish they'd fall through. He has a blue light in his mouth. Which he has in some scenes, doesn't I, he? I believe that this is the only this is the only sequence where he has it. He has it throughout this. Yeah, because I was reading about this, and because it was talking about it, like it's throughout the film, I was like, I can't see that. It's not. Yeah, I, scene, you can suddenly see it, and it is kind of weird and a bit uncanny. And I, I love the way that it looks. I, it... I can see how you <laughs> yeah. press Mister Freeze's head, and a little blue LED lights up in his mouth. So the, um, the problem was that that they tried to put an LED in his mouth. They were not very, I guess, very sophisticated about this, um, and his saliva kind of broke down through the seams. Uh, and basically the battery started disintegrating and leaking yeah, battery acid into his mouth. So that didn't work. They And yeah. so then they, they figured out, well, how about we put a balloon over it and put that in his mouth? And I guess that worked enough to get them through this sequence. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, it's a pissy because it's like, I'm sure now you could probably do that really easily. But yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's funny to, um, that feels like a little story from a much more primitive era of filmmaking of like, we didn't realize this was going to leak battery acid. And then we get some new vehicles. Here's where we get. So this is now as demanded by Kenner toys. Now everybody's got a new costume on and Batman. So his car is called the ice glow bat hammer, which looks like a plane, but is not Robin has a jet blade, which is, it has like this big rotating fan on the back. And then Batgirl is on her ice strike cycle. Of course. Kind of going through the frozen Gotham City. And so, like, here, it's just as naked as it could possibly be. They put in the scene. Well, yeah. I'm, I just don't understand. Why isn't there a line ADR'd in to explain that, I don't know, these costumes are... These are, like, these ice, are their, uh, their glacial... Ice terrain costumes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the theatrics of doing a costume change for no reason whatsoever. It feels like mm-hmm. something Liz Taylor, if she was in a Batman film, would be doing. But, uh, yeah, it's... I, I think there were, even within the reality of this film, that does divorce it a little bit more than we'd like. Probably especially because they're supposed to be, like... They they're only have... The world, aren't they? Yeah, they, they have 11 minutes. 11 minutes, and, yeah, we'll go back to the Batcave and we'll <laughs> change. Get into our whole new costumes. I think they look great, though. They do a really nice shot where it's all three of them with their hands on their hips and sort of really showing off like mm-hmm. we have cool new suits. The thing that I read was that that this was kind of last minute that the the costume designers were sort of caught a little bit caught aback taken aback by this having to do this and so what they did was they took some old suits and cut out pieces and then like painted them silver yeah. and glued those pieces onto the onto the bat suits. But I think they look fantastic. Oh, they look great, and it's as a visual, it's great. And actually, as yeah, all my my misgivings about Batgirl, the three of them together look really, really good. You could sort of it, it wasn't it wasn't a movie poster shot, but it could have been. Yeah, there's a funny thing with Batgirl. I don't know if you noticed this. Um, while she was driving, 
on her little motorcycle, she had a bat cowl on. Yeah. And then as as soon as as she's standing there with the other two, she rips it off and shakes out her hair and she throws it on the ground. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? That feels yeah. Does that feel like they did two days of unit photography with a stuntman and then they couldn't reshoot before they made it? It feels to me like they they wanted the costume because they want to sell that toy. Right. With, with her with the with the bat cowl on. But if you've got Alicia Silverstone and she has, you know, beautiful long blonde hair. You want to like, see it. You want to see that. So yeah. But it's this very funny, like kind of awkward moment of her like just taking it off really <laughs> fast and putting it on the ground and forgetting all about it. So now they have they have made a plan. Batman has heaters in his belt buckle, which doesn't seem like the right place to to put stuff. But he kind of takes this stuff off of the off of the belt buckle area and is heating up the scientists. They are looking at a control panel. They have eight more minutes and the Gothamites will be ice cubes forever. And they know that sunlight could reverse the freezing process. It could. Uh, Yeah, this is I mean, this is a very old sequence. And there's. what we were talking about much earlier, I think it suffers from the fact that of all the big rooms we've gone into mm. during the film, the last one is the least remarkable. And I think you can tell they know that because they sort of try and dress it up with by projecting planets all over it and they're having mm-hmm. this spin, trying to make what's, I don't know if it's a money thing or a time thing, but, you know, what's ended up being quite a uh, an undressed grey space. They're trying yeah. to dress it up with lighting in quite a cheap way and it and there's know. and there's like two levels to it which are kind of confusing because they've got to be yeah. up, they're up on some like scaffolding to operate the telescope and you don't really see anything under but there is sort of this under carriage area yeah it feels like a sort of i mean it feels if i was being unkind like a set that's been designed in the absence of a script yeah, it's, yeah. It's not actually terribly helpful for the scenes they've got to stage on it. And that really? levels particularly is really awkward and at times unhelpful. Yeah, they don't really use it properly. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's that sort of aspect to it. Um, but simultaneously, I love all the stuff about freezing Gotham City. They've got that. That, that is beautiful. Yeah. Story, and they do the dumbest joke in the world with the dog raising his leg and being, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is just. Yeah. You know, I so I like that. It's it's, it's, it's kind of odd. It's it is a slightly underpowered finale because I say I think we've had all this visual spectacle and it feels like it sags a little bit and we mm-hmm. everyone's maybe a little exhausted and would like to make a very simple film that I yeah. don't know all, all on location without building ice mobiles and things like that. <laughs> or it's possible they just don't know. They don't know how to. They've written themselves into something that they don't know how to get out of. I mean, it, it, I suppose the problem it does have, and it's not really... I mean, there's always a problem with these films. How do you end them? Mm-hmm. And this is a we press buttons urgently ending. Right. Yeah. Which is not... I don't think it's great for superheroes. I think you want something expressed through action. And they sort of try and do it by having uh, Clooney and Mr. Freeze slug it out mm-hmm. at the last minute. But it it's not a great fight. And yeah it's staged again on this platform that's very narrow and they can't really move about very much Mm -hmm. and so it ends up being a bit just underpowered yeah and the and the telescope kind of tumbles over the cliff a little bit and the scientists are kind of hanging on it with 
Batgirl and and Robin and and this is just this is another one of those like oh they're falling we know mm-hmm. that these heroes can can deal with falling they just shoot their grappling hooks which is exactly what they do um mm-hmm. and and make short work of that um yeah it, and it sort of suffers from I think this thing about heights throughout the entire film where <laughs> clearly no one has any perception of what height height is in relation to other things right. where no, they could be they seem to be miles in the air from what i can tell it's like yes. being a, yeah. top of a skyscraper yeah um i never for one minute it's like they're not even really sort of doing the thing where you blow fans in people's faces <laughs> right yeah it's very much a, they're just you know, yelling a, yeah there's a wall of this set that is has a green screen and something will be there yeah and clearly none of the actors in that scene quite know what it is I don't think they're giving a performance. No one, even the very engaged character actors, are not giving a performance that reflects that. <laughs> yeah. Being. And then it's kind of a one punch punch ending for both of the villains. Like Bane has Robin and Batgirl up against the wall, and that's a really bad take as well. Yeah. They just kind of like no, kick it. On. They kick it a pipe. It really feels like it needs to be ripped out, and it needs to spray. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, come on, guys, you really, could you not have gone for another take of that? Yeah. They both just kind of like tap it with their feet. Rather feebly kind of, yeah. Yeah. And it's... Well, and the it's, it's shot where he kind of deflates, I think it's kind of good. But then immediately after that, Batman just like pops Mr. Freeze in the face. Yeah. Which again, I feel is not... I, and particularly we've done this whole thing. We had the, the fun thing in... Um, mm-hmm. Earlier on, where Mister Freeze is in his uh, cone of refrigeration, I forget what it was called. What was it called? The where cold beam. The cold beam. Yeah. And I feel like actually, is there some way we could have inverted that? And Mister Freeze is cornered by heat, which we're doing all mm-hmm. this thing, mm-hmm. beaming sunlight around. Oh, right. Yeah. Why didn't they do that? That would be much better, actually. You know, as you say, it feels like oh, it's it's a it feels like a fight scene that hasn't actually been storyboarded. Yeah. You can sort of. Like the museum thing has been storyboarded with an inch yes. of light. Yeah. You know, was, I believe there was a drawing where that vase goes up in the air, and I believe there were two drawings of how it got down again and all yeah. of that. So whereas this just feels like, all right, guys, just just slug it out a bit. Yeah, just do a punch. Barbara gets to do a little computer genius thing, if that helps. I do wish that they I mean, this is just my wish about Batgirl that they had kind of like connected that computer stuff throughout the actual movie, as opposed to uh bringing it in just here in the last second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that satellites are mirrors. I don't know if people know that about satellites. That's a they that's a, a new piece of information that like they use the satellites as mirrors, and that focuses sunlight on the freezing city. And guess what? With an amazing musical flourish, everything, all the ice melts. Gothamites are back to normal, and it turns out Freeze is now he's uh, he's been captured. He says, "Go on, kill me, like you killed my wife." And they have proof that actually it was Poison Ivy who tried to kill his wife. But guess what? We found her and we restored her and she's still frozen alive. This is what happens. It has something thematic about it. Is mm-hmm. that, you know, it does play into this whole thing about um, you were once a doctor. It connects Mr. Freeze to the life he, he had and is long lost. Mm-hmm. And there is something, there is actually some meaningful redemption. I think Clooney is actually good in it. Yeah, I like it. I like that it's not it is not the most obvious thing that they could do. Mm-hmm. The obvi- the most obvious thing is just like both Poison Ivy and Freeze and Bane are all like knocked out with one big punch 
And then now we put them all in prison and and they're like gnashing their teeth. Like they actually take a second to to give Freeze a different kind of ending mm-hmm. and a more hopeful kind of ending. And luckily he has found the cure for McGregor's syndrome, <laughs> at least partly. I, I like the sort of neatness that he has these vials mm-hmm. in a little pocket in his suit. Yeah. And the sort of take two of these and see me. Uh, and call me in the morning. Then call me in the morning. Yeah. And I it's sort of like that Mr. Freeze and this prone sort of string and he's got his eyes are kind of blind and he's kind of he's sort of desiccated and you know hopeless. I like the way he still cracks a joke. Yeah, he's still he's always happy, that guy. Even <laughs> even in defeat. And so they uh they cure Alfred. Alfred's all better now. I'm very impressed at how fast this happens because I was I'm not saying I was literally counting down to the end, but I was sort of looking at the counter. I was going, God, they've mm-hmm. got three minutes to yeah Alfred and do this and they actually I was saying if I got that right they, yeah they do it in three minutes which is yeah no messing about he just perks up Ivy is not dead it turns out she was just trapped I guess now she's now she's Harley Quinn I guess it's they do it with the Riddler as well don't they in the previous film this idea mm-hmm. of the defeated villains a bit sorry for themselves in prison is yeah it's so sort of it's so sort of childish but I, I find it's an oddly satisfying scene. And then that they put Freeze into her cell with her. Which is truly, I don't know what that's <laughs> made of. I mean, I'm not sure, is that, how you, how, is that how you treat a mentally ill person? I don't think so. And it sort of positions him, again, as kind of like, he's sort of a good guy because he's going to be torturing the bad villain. I don't know. It was a, a weird, it's a weird thing that they do. Kind of like, it's like a, a joke, but I'm not sure what the joke is. Yes, yeah, exactly. There is one last absolutely tragic Batgirl moment, and then this is the end of the movie. Here they are. They're doing the post-game. Alfred gets up and walks into the room. Everybody's happy. Here's Bruce and Dick and Barbara. They are all thrilled. And Barbara says, I don't what they're boasting. I forget what, what cues this, um, but they're kind of boasting about defeating the villains. Barbara says, excuse me. I believe I'm the one who kicked Ivy's botanical butt. Yeah, that was me. I did it all by myself. That was me. One of the most annoying lines ever put on film. I don't know what they were thinking. How much of this is down to Alicia Silverstone and Clueless having just been this zeitgeisty huge movie? Did they just think mm-hmm. everyone would love her? No matter what she says. Therefore, yeah. And... Therefore, we would just because it does sort of presuppose that we think Barbara is the coolest, adorable, person, yeah, and really deserves this praise, right? Is not being utterly obnoxious and self-absorbed. <laughs> the really sad thing is, it feels to me like this was like a feminist statement for them. I think it probably was, and unfortunately, it's about as articulate a statement as you would get in a late nineties <laughs> film directed by a gay guy and written by. A bro screenwriter. <laughs> I mean, it does feel like that. It does feel like. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a, we're with a film that you know mostly seems to be the work of people who've never interacted with a woman, let alone <laughs> a relationship. Well, you know, you know, it feels like there's a whole sort of thing running through is that women are really alien creatures that we don't <laughs> we don't really understand. Understand. we we don't understand their ways, and if only we could. <laughs> it's well meaning, and it, we are looking back a quarter of a century. I mean, how many genuinely good female characters have we had in superhero movies since then? Is maybe I I would say we've I would say we've had enough. We've had better ones than this, but I, I, <laughs> I think don't think it, I'm not even going to go into it. I don't think you win that fight. 
right. that bar that barbara is the best is the best that we get she is not it's the best you're going to get in 97 it's the best that we did get in 1997 wow. and then they all kind of run past the bat signal and it's the end of the movie and if if this movie had made more than 107 million dollars then we would have had a fifth one what a film that would have been Jill Schumacher apologized for it several times. He did, but I think that almost became mythologized really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, this this is a terrible film, and I think lots of yeah. people died out on that. And in some ways, I guess Alicia Silverstone's the, the exception, but everyone else kind of, no one's careers were particularly derailed by it. No, everybody you know, was fine, Schumacher, yeah. He had a few lean years, but he went on and did, you know, plenty of other good films. And so you can, I think that gives you license. You can dine out on being mm-hmm. in the worst Batman film, even though I don't think it is. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you hear those stories about O'Clooney giving people who said they saw it their money back. And yeah, yeah. I, I think it became a sort of good sport. Mm-hmm. And it's like and it almost a bit sort of a little defensive. If you get in first, then you've avoided that. You've avoided the ridicule. Yeah. Yeah. It. Um, but well, I, I listened to his DVD commentary, which he recorded, I think, like 2005. So it's about eight years on. And, and now, you know, he really he knows the reputation that it has. And I think he's actually quite sweet about it. He seems good humored and he seems to own the shortcomings of that film. Mm-hmm. And he's without demeaning his, or disowning his own work. And I think that's a delicate line to tread. I like that he takes response. There's a great line where he says, if you love a movie, there are hundreds of people that made it lovable for you. If you don't like it, blame the director. That's what our name's there for. Mm-hmm. Which is really sweet. Just kind of like taking it on and and not saying there was a problem with the cast or the crew. He takes responsibility for it. And and when he talks about pieces that that people did not love, basically what his response is like, well, it was meant to amuse. Mm-hmm. That's what it was there for. I think you can tell he put a lot into the work and took a lot of joy from it. And that, yeah. again, it's very hard. I think it's very hard to be cynical about that or too dismissive or nasty. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm. I, I think he deserves a lot more credit for this than he gets because it is, you know, while it, you know, it has its successes and it has its shortcomings and it has some really weird, odd, mm-hmm. odd things. Uh, I think it's also got a lot that's cherishable and it's got a lot that's very distinctive and, um, and I think puts way more effort in than a two hour toy commercial really. I mean, the free stuff, just at pretty much every scene with him, everything about him, I think is, is worth cherishing is, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give that up. Mm-hmm. And the idea that this is the worst superhero movie, like I would say like Electra, and, and the, the 2015 fantastic four. I don't know if you've seen that. I have seen that, which I think is, yeah. That one, like the 2015 fantastic four, like it's just mean. Like the thing that's upsetting about it is that it ends like the whole you know third act is is just the Fantastic Four like underground being tortured and upset and hating Reed and hating each other, and it just it feels like it's mean to those characters, and there's nothing like that here. I I like that is bad. Like it's badly made. It's badly conceived, mm-hmm. and there's no excuse for it in the way that at least Schumacher was just trying to make people happy. I think this is probably the most influential superhero film since the original Superman. How come? Well, the whole trajectory of those films in the the 
20 years that follows would be completely different had this film not. Mm. It's in some ways, it's it's like a piece of elastic. You know, anything mm-hmm. creative is like a piece of elastic. You stretch it. And generally, if it's an established property, um, you find it with Doctor Who every once in a while. Someone will try mm-hmm. and reinvent it really aggressively. And what happens is yeah. it just snaps back into shape and becomes the thing it once it always was. Mm-hmm. But the tension when you get to that real stretch point you get really interesting stuff and that interesting I, I, I my mileage for entertainment <laughs> has sort of changed over the years i think i'd take an interesting film over a satisfactory one and this is an incredibly interesting film i could talk well we have talked yeah, about this yeah. <laughs> in a way that you know there are lots you know there are lots of things i've seen that superficially much mm-hmm. they're much more tasteful they're much more efficient but yeah they're not interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would, I would contend that without this, I mean, Chris Nolan is not to my taste, but I can see how I don't think it would have happened without, without this film. This film feels like the end of a particular line of thought. You follow, yeah. you know, a, a particular way of thinking about superhero movies as like comic book and huge and loud and silly and Dutch angle. And this is about as far as you can take that. Mm. And which, you know, it worked as long as Batman, you know, in Batman forever. And then they tried to push it like a little bit further with this. Mm. And then there's nowhere else to go after that. And so I think to your point, like if you take that all the way to the end of that line, then you have to rethink. And that's why, Three years later, when they made X-Men, it, it is completely different from that. It mm. is now really trying to say, let's let's locate this in in real feelings and real characters. Mm-hmm. We're not going to pretend that everything's a comic book. We're not going to make everything like bright and everybody puts yellow, yellow costumes on. And I think also it was a, probably a lesson and a very maybe a hard lesson, certainly Warner Brothers to learn that you couldn't. Mm-hmm manufacture a merchandising event out of one of these films you know the the sort of chicken right. egg thing I mean, and we i think we know the egg really did become before the chicken in this case because it mm-hmm. was all of i mean yeah on, on the dvd features you've got people literally talk the art department people talking about the designs kind of being ripped out of their hands because they've got to go away and make uh tooling to get to right. go off to the far east so They'll have a Batmobile in, <laughs> in toy shops in in eighteen months' time. Yeah, all of that, sort of, I mean, which is clearly not a sensible way to make anything, let alone mm-hmm. a movie that putting incredible amounts of money into. Yeah, and I think there was a it, this film is is an example, I think, of people overreaching mm-hmm. in, in in an extraordinary way, and and I think that sort of. Why I love this because it is an endpoint, and it's mm-hmm. an endpoint I don't think is ever going to be revisited. Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad that that thing about Schumacher praising mm-hmm. the hundreds of people who made something special. I think that, yeah, that that bit of it, I think even the most cynical person who really dislikes that film, I know that you can take that away from anyone yeah. who works. Stuart Manning, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been so much fun talking to you about this. Uh, where where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I don't have much to say, but you can check me out if you want. Uh, I'm at Stuart underscore Manning. Uh, and yeah, and I think I'm that on most things. So yeah, All right. Fantastic. For more comedy about the history of superhero movies, you can go to the blog at superheroeseveryday.com. If you like the show, please leave a review or you could reach me on Twitter, Facebook, or on the blog. It would be great to hear from you. And please 
Tell the people in your life about the show. Here's what's coming up in the next episode. Coming up in two weeks, film critic Robert Fares joins me to talk about the 2016 massive multiplayer mashup, Joss Whedon's Justice League. How do you get in touch with the tribes of men, do you think? Is there like a phone tree or do you have to call them all individually? He's got this kind of outfit that is all shiny and sort of a Vegas showgirl headdress. It's clear he's got a red carpet in his future somewhere, but he's got to pick up this mother box on the way. Atlantis basically has a very similar kind of security system, which is basically just like a rope around it that says, please don't touch. I feel like they they might have just given all three boxes to humans. Oh, now don't don't go there because I'm just saying I'm just asking questions. I just kept waiting for somebody to say that all three of the mother boxes are named Martha. All right. Get excited for that. Come back for the Superheroes Everyday Podcast. Thanks for listening. Love you. Bye. make sure you're serious about turning over a new leaf i need a sign how about slippery when wet of trust tell me your plan kiss me and i'll tell you tell me and i'll kiss you <laughs>